Machine learning allows software to improve as that software consumes more data. Machine learning is a tool that every software engineer wants to be able to use. Because machine learning is so broadly applicable, software companies want to make the tools more accessible to the developers across the organization. Because, in the limit, every software engineer will be able to take advantage of machine learning. There are many steps that an engineer must go through to use machine learning. And each additional step inhibits the chances that the engineer will actually get their model into production. An engineer who wants to build machine learning into their application needs access to datasets. They need to join those datasets. They need to load them into a machine, or multiple machines, where their model can be trained. And once the model is trained, the model needs to test on additional data to ensure quality. If the initial model quality is insufficient, the engineer might need to tweak the training parameters. Once a model is accurate enough, the engineer needs to deploy that model to production. After deployment, the model might need to be updated with new data later on. If the model is processing sensitive or financially relevant data, a provenance process might be necessary to allow for an audit trail of decisions that have been made by the model. Rob Story and Kelly Rivois are engineers working on machine learning infrastructure at Stripe. After recognizing the difficulties that engineers faced in creating and deploying machine learning models, Stripe engineers built out RailYard, an API for machine learning workloads within the company. Rob and Kelly join the show to discuss data engineering and machine learning at Stripe, and their work on RailYard. A few quick updates from Software Engineering Daily Land. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. Find Collabs is the company I'm building, and we're having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. If you're working on a project or you are looking for other programmers to build a project or start a company with, check out Find Collabs. I've been interviewing people from some of the projects on Find Collabs on the Find Collabs podcast. So if you want to learn more about the community, you can hear that podcast. We have a new app for Software Daily on iOS. It includes all 1,000 of our old episodes, as well as related links, greatest hits, topics. You can comment on episodes. You can have discussions with other members of the Software Daily community. And you can become a paid subscriber for ad-free episodes at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. With that, let's get on to today's show. Kelly and Rob, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, great to be here. You are both engineers on machine learning infrastructure, data infrastructure. Describe some of the use cases for machine learning at Stripe. So in terms of machine learning at Stripe, I think every company that does machine learning has kind of like the first things they started doing and then how it grew from there. And for most companies, it's either initially some internal analytics or some application that's like critical to your business, like ads or spam come up a lot. So for Stripe, that kind of critical production use case was a couple of different types of risk, both like evaluating for each transaction that comes through Stripe, is that a good transaction or is it fraud, which eventually became our product radar, as well as kind of for ourselves understanding our users and like whether we might have some users that for different reasons we might not want to support. So that was kind of how we started out with machine learning in production. And over time, we've kind of grown a bunch of other cases, especially as we've built like a little bit more of a platform to enable it. 
So in our product, in addition to Radar, that's our fraud product, we also do, for example, smart retries of failed subscriptions in our billing product. We use machine learning a lot internally for different types of risk, like I mentioned, like, you know, is this a good user? Is this your user selling something that we can support? We also use machine learning a lot internally for analytics to understand kind of our users and who we might want to reach out to about something or like to help us um, suggest resolution paths for customer support, for example. And with this variety of machine learning use cases throughout the company, you've got probably some people who are classified as data scientists, some people who are machine learning engineers, maybe people who are classified as researchers. How do the internal user types vary in their technical proficiency and how they want their machine learning tool set to be presented to them? Yeah, that's a really, really excellent question that also has diversified a little bit over time for us. Early on, especially for our production-focused applications, we hired what we call ML engineers, who are kind of like the unicorn, where they can do a little bit of all of it. Like, you know, they are good software engineers with good programming skills. They also know like statistics and data science. And so our early tools were kind of built for people who really knew a lot about a lot. As Stripe has grown, we've seen kind of different types of users who want to onboard to our platforms. In some cases, people who are more traditional data scientists who know a lot about machine learning and stats, but are maybe less software engineers. And also product engineers who like know a lot about their product and how to build it, but maybe aren't as familiar with machine learning. And so I think that's been one of the challenges and one of the things that in some cases we've been able to kind of as we have a better platform onboard different skill sets, but also that we're kind of thinking about going forward in terms of how to make things easy for people and give them the experience they want when you do have this sort of different set of backgrounds. Both of you work on data infrastructure at Stripe. There's, well, you have data infrastructure and machine learning infrastructure. I'm not sure what the division there is, but I consider both of these forms of, quote, platform engineering, where you're building areas of the infrastructure that multiple different teams within the company are utilizing. How does platform engineering work at Stripe? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And machine learning infrastructure is actually part of our data infrastructure group. And we have a little bit of like, we're our own users where machine learning infrastructure builds on basically all of our other data teams, like the storage teams, the batch and streaming platform teams. And then that kind of sits within what we call kind of foundation engineering. That's a very expansive definition of infrastructure, where basically these are all the teams whose users are other teams at Stripe, who, like you said, sort of provide these almost like services to the company that other engineers or data scientists or analysts can use. And when we think about like, you know, are we making our users happy and building what they want? Those are all kind of people we can talk to inside the company. Rob, what's the relationship between a platform engineering team at Stripe and the different business logic teams at Stripe, the kinds of teams that might be utilizing tools given to them by platform engineering. Yeah, I think this gets a little bit back to Kelly, what Kelly was saying about you know the ML engineers, where those ML engineers are really the bridge between sort of the, the product-focused application side, like the use the uses of ML in our product and in the application, and actually like doing all of the software development and, and modeling to like enable that. So, you know, basically 
those folks are our customers. So the ML engineers are our customers. They say, hey, we're trying to do ML you know, for this product or for this application. And it's sort of here are our needs from the infrastructure side. Here are the needs from you all. And so you know, we work with them to, to build like the tools and services you know, to help them do their jobs. And then sort of we're also working with the other data platform teams for our needs, right? So we're, we're sort of in this like interesting middle spot in the data stack where we're building infrastructure, but we also have infrastructure needs below us for the things that we're building. And then we're interacting directly with those like applications and, and product engineers to help them build their, build their software and their models. Yeah, and our ML Infra not only relies on kind of all of data, but also sort of like all of Stripe's infrastructure engineering. Like a lot of what Rob did in this work was to work with our orchestration team that runs our Kubernetes clusters. So we really are kind of like in this in the middle of the stack where we both are users of a lot of other Stripe teams as well as supporting many other Stripe teams. Maybe this would be a better question for the orchestration team, but how has Kubernetes affected infrastructure at Stripe? I can I can answer that sort of from our team's perspective. So, you know, RealYard, a machine learning model training service, we run jobs on Kubernetes, but Kubernetes has actually had a, a much bigger effect for us in terms of like the services that we operate. So one thing that we do is we, we generate features for models like real time in production. So we sort of have like a streaming system that generates these feature values in real time. And pre-Kubernetes, the way that we would do this is we'd, in AWS, we'd stand up a bunch of EC2 instances. We were basically running a little cluster of these things for, for every big feature set that we had. And there was just a ton of toil and, and, and management for us to manage like all of these service clusters. I think we got to the point where like our team was running like you know, over a hundred instances, just ourselves, these little services, you know, these streaming instances, and we were sort of managing these big clusters of streaming, uh, streaming services. So Kubernetes like really took a lot of that burden off of us. We were able to move, you know, most of those clusters to basically like, you know, Kubernetes pods. And, you know, now to stand up one of these things, uh, we sort of have a declarative specification that we can write to stand up a new one. And whereas previously it was like, all right, how do we get a new one stood up? Well, it'll probably take a week or two. Now we can do it in just a couple of days, right? Because the orchestration team has built a platform that lets us very quickly sort of get these new streaming clusters up for us to do a real-time feature generation. So that's been a huge impact for us. Like it was very, very toilsome for us to do this before. And now it's it's reasonably quick. With the reduction of friction in standing up infrastructure, what are the downstream advantages for teams like yourself that are building platform infrastructure? So you get to take advantage of the lack of friction from Kubernetes and perhaps, I don't know, other benefits, reliability and so on. How has that impacted your work? Well, there's kind of like two ways in which we're impacted. I think Rob talked about one. So like on the one hand, for our infrastructure teams, if we have services that we can onboard to Kubernetes, it reduces like our toil and the time we spend managing them. And then the flip side of that and sort of the other advantage is that, you know, we can do more for our users. In some cases, that's just like redirecting time we would have spent managing instances into time, like, you know, building products for them. But I think in the case of the work that Rob did with Railyard, it also like actually produces a better platform, not just one that's less work to run, where we can give them a lot more flexibility about like what types of resources they need to train their models, like better isolation from what other people are doing. So I think it's not just like less work to run, it's like actually a better platform. The story that we have told so far is that there are 
a diverse set of teams throughout Stripe that need machine learning infrastructure. They need to do machine learning jobs for fraud, risk, and a variety of other tasks. Basically, you know, Stripe is a numbers company. You've got a lot of numbers. You want to have machine learning on a lot of those numbers. So you want to have tools for people to apply machine learning to their numerical calculations. And so you set up these these infrastructure teams, like a, a data infrastructure and machine learning team, to offer a platform, to offer internal services to these different business logic users. Your team is, is that data infrastructure team. And in order to build the right tools, you have to interface with those teams. You have to figure out what the problems they have in, in setting up their data infrastructure, in setting up their machine learning models. What are the challenges that you hear repeatedly from engineers who are building, maybe it's an internal accounting tool, maybe it's a fraud and risk model, but the chronic challenges of somebody building machine learning infrastructure? It's a good question. I think, I think one of the biggest challenges, and this isn't actually one of the things that Railyard solves, but sort of we, we've got some other tools and services that help with this, is sort of understanding what data do we have, you know, what does that data look like in terms of building features, and then how do we sort of turn these features into into something meaningful for a machine learning model? So, I think that all the teams across the company like. Question one, when they sit down and they say, I want to build a model is, what data do I have? Critically, what labels do I have, right? So not just the data that turns into features, but sort of what is the label for this thing? So so given these features, you know, for example, for fraud, it's like, is it fraudulent or not? That's an example of a label, right? The, with like the smart retries thing, it's like, did the retry succeed or not, right? That's another example of a label. So I think a lot of, a lot of the challenges, especially up front, is around just sort of figuring out what data do we have? What data do we have labeled? And then moving in into sort of the, the modeling piece. And, and to some degree, the modeling piece, you know, kind of actually like building the model, training the model is kind of the easy step compared to actually like doing the feature engineering and, and understanding the data. That is a lot of the work in the, you know, in the machine learning process is just, you know, getting a, getting a handle on sort of what data you have, whether or not how clean that data is, right? Like, you know, whether or not you have a messy data set and then uh, whether or not you have labels for sort of the problem that you're trying to model. It's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, in preparing for the show, you know, thinking about Railyard, which we're going to get to talking about eventually, which is the, the platform that you have both worked on. I read most of the blog post, and I don't remember seeing data discovery as a problem. It doesn't surprise me at all that data discovery or or data understanding, you know, metadata understanding of what data sets you have available to you, what those data sets consist of. Do you have an internal data discovery platform where engineers can kind of like dig through what... Because, I mean, for people who, who have not worked at a company like Stripe, you know, you've got... S3 buckets, you've got SQL databases, you've got Mongo databases, you've got databases on databases, you've got databases of databases. Like, if you want to build a machine learning model within Stripe, you might be able to leverage data sets that are in a totally different area of the company. So how do you solve data discovery here? Yeah, that's something we thought about a lot. And I think Stripe is also a company where we have a lot of people who want to dig in. Like, we have Met, probably a majority of the company knows SQL and like people are sort of 
really advocates for looking into things themselves and not just asking other people. A couple of years ago, we built some internal tooling focused particularly at the SQL side to help people kind of navigate like of the data they have access to, like what's in it, or like kind of be able to kind of easily write queries and make simple graphs. And so I think we continue to try to empower like making something like that available. For machine learning specifically, like the blog post focuses on Railyard, which is the training platform, but there, there are a few other complementary pieces. Like there's like, how do we do scoring in real time? Another big piece is like, how do we do feature generation? And we've done a lot of work on having kind of like a framework for feature generation and increasingly making it support like sharing of features between related applications. Not to disorient you, but what is fe- what is feature generation? Yeah, good question. Know. So feature generation, this is basically what Rob was saying is, you know, let's say you want to train a model. Usually you have this idea that like you'll turn some data into some matrix and then you'll feed that into some algorithm and that'll, you know, that'll give you your model. And basically like each row in the matrix you feed in is like an observation and each column in that matrix is a feature. So a feature is like basically like, you know, sort of like a fact about something. So it might be if I'm trying to predict fraud, like what country was the card issued from? Like how many countries has this card been used from in the past? This is creating an embedding space. An embedding is kind of one type of feature, but you can also have features that are like counters or features that are just like simple facts. But in any case, it is you are looking at different examples and putting them in some high dimensional space, right? Yeah. So you look at like different, let's say, event streams that come in, like charges or like login events or many other things. And you you can either try and use those wholesale or you can turn them into embedding or you can kind of like aggregate over them, but basically like find different ways to pull things out, combine or look at the data that then you can feed into your model. So you might have a set of credit card transactions and you might take those credit card transactions and build additional features on top of them, like look at the data among them and then build features on top of them? Or are you just saying that in each of those transactions, the features that they have within those transactions, that's enough data to, to build your model? Yeah, so you can, and we do do all of the above. So you can pull off, like, you know, here's one element of that transaction. You can say, like, well, let me look across all the transactions or all the transactions, like, on this card or yeah. whatever attribute and kind of do some sort of aggregation. Okay. You can do joins, like, across different event streams, and that's something we support in real, real time. Or, like you were saying, you can maybe, like, try and create pre-learn some embedding and use that as a feature. There's there's a lot of different options. But one of the things we try and do as a platform is find ways for people to like leverage related investments. So like teams who work on radar fraud product and teams who work on risk internally. Well, you know, a lot of the features they look at you could kind of use for both applications. So we try and make our platform sort of like support that like more naturally, both from a discovery point of view and also increasingly from like a computation point of view mm-hmm. where you know, sometimes these computations are like quite large and maybe there are also pieces that we can reuse of that as well. So if I think about the job of somebody who wants to build a model for detecting fraudulent transactions, for example, I might take a set of transactions, I look at the features that are just in those transactions. Maybe they were they take place in a certain geo, they take place in a certain time frame, they're, you know, from a certain merchant. And maybe I can look across the features that are just in those transactions, and I can find correlations. I can find interesting correlations and use that to create a model for doing classifications in the future. 
or maybe I want to look at those data sets and join them with other data sets throughout the company in order to kind of enrich the features that I have available and, again, create a model for finding correlations that will help me identify future transactions as being fraudulent or not. I think that's pretty spot on. Like you, you know, you can start with you know sort of the features in an individual row, but I think that we've seen that to build really good models, you do end up having to use sort of these aggregates and, and sort of joining other data sources in from across the company. Yeah, I went off on a tangent a little bit. So the data discovery question is that is that a solved problem within Stripe or is it still kind of unsolved? I, I would say it's something we have some solutions for, but I don't think we've like solved the entire space. So I think in some cases. You know, like I was saying, we've built some kind of internal UIs and tools where people can do some data discovery for machine learning specifically by having this shared features framework that allows like kind of some sense of that. And then one of the things that we're trying to do is just like make that even easier. And like I mentioned, also see if we can share more of the computation, because a lot of what people find is that machine learning is computationally intensive and like a lot of the time you know, you want to be iterating as quickly as possible on like, try this new feature, get this new model out. And the less computation you have to do in order to do that, the better. So like, if you just added one new thing, like it's cool if you don't have to recompute everything, right? And I think that's something that the ML Infra team is kind of like thinking about a lot and trying to improve for users. Uh, Before we get into Railyard, just to go through a little bit more context on the day-to-day life of somebody who is building and iterating on and maintaining machine learning models, I might build this system for detecting fraudulent transactions. Over time, I want to feed new data into that model. I want to look at new features and and update my model with new features. I may want to do A-B testing to see what leads to more fraud coming through my system. And this starts to look something like a continuous delivery problem where or continuous integration problem where you start to say, okay, how am I iterating on my program that happens to be a machine learning model? How do the problems of machine learning deployment and maintenance manifest at Stripe? I think that you've you've sort of touched on, and this will actually be a nice segue for Railyard because sort of the things that you just described were some of the really driving forces and motivators to build Railyard in the first place. A lot of the things like sort of training models and deploying models and building features and that sort of thing, you know, in the early days of Stripe, that was basically, you know, a human would sort of SSH into an EC2 instance and do these things by hand, right? Getting these things out the door was sort of a long process because a human would have to be involved every step of the way. And as Stripe has grown and as our machine learning infrastructure team has sort of built more of these tools and services, what we're trying to do is make that process as streamlined as possible. You know, computers are really good at doing things once a day, for example. So like, you know, it's really pretty straightforward to have a system that like, you know, trains a model once a day, right? Like that's a thing that you can get a computer to do rather than a human to do. The same thing with sort of generating features on a daily basis, with deploying a model on a daily basis. You can automate all of these things. I think there's still some things that you want humans in the loop for, right? You know, when it comes to sort of like deploying new models to production, that sort of thing, you know, in, in some cases, you know, or in most cases, we still have like someone actually hitting the button to hit to say go or like launching a new A-B test. That's something, that, you know, someone will actually set that up manually, that sort of thing. But a lot of sort of the, the upstream things, the actual like retraining 
We're trying to get to a world where, where that is as automated as, as we can make it. Tell me about the process of specking out RailYard. What is RailYard? What were the objectives in getting it off the ground? And what were the early days of building RailYard like? Yeah. So the, the first impetus for RailYard was, you know, I kind of just described this process of sort of humans, like kind of manually training a model and then deploying that model, fetching features, that sort of thing. One of our customer teams, one of ML Infrastructure's customer teams came to us and said, we'd really like to take the human out of the loop for this. We'd really like to retrain our models on, you know, a daily or weekly cadence. And we'd like this to largely be hands off. And not only would we like to train just one model, because, you know, with just one model, maybe it's okay for, you know, a person to just train it and say, okay, I'm done. They were interested in training, you know, tens or hundreds of models at a time, right? And for that, we were like, okay, it doesn't doesn't make sense for a person to be doing this. You know, we have schedulers like Airflow. We can build software to do this. But critically, what we need is we need an API in front of the model training process, what we really want is, is a way to sort of make an HTTP call to train a model, you know, not fire up a process, you know, on the box or whatever. So we sort of wanted to separate concerns there a little bit, right? We wanted to have kind of the upstream components that were responsible for, you know, orchestrating that I want to retrain this model on this data. And then ML infrastructure was going to sort of build this API to do this training. So we talked to a bunch of customers. It was It was really focused on sort of fraud classifiers at first. That was like the big use case. One thing we mentioned in the blog post is sort of how RailYard has been used in ways that we didn't really anticipate at the time. But the first use case was sort of very focused on sort of this this fraud classification problem. And we already had some 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 pretty good sort of Python task runner code. Again, it was in it was in the genre of a human, you know, runs a command and, and does some Python things. And so the idea was, okay, what if we put an API in front of this? We don't change the Python code that much. We sort of execute the same Python code, you know, training code that we were executing before, but we restructure it a little bit so that the interfaces on the edges are a bit nicer, so that we have something that sort of looks like uh, steps of a workflow, so that someone who wants to train a new model, like they don't have to get into the super nitty gritty, like that they can sort of hand off the responsibility for a couple things to us. For example, like they can say, I want to fetch this, you know, these columns, the columns of this data for this time frame. Railyard, please go fetch that for me. You hand me data and like a, a pandas data frame and an interface that I understand. I'll train my model and then I'm going to give my model to you and I expect you to serialize that model and serialize all my evaluation data and make it available for scoring. Where I, so that I just really have to focus on the model training piece. So that was the idea in the beginning. It was like we were going to build an API for model training. This API was going to enable our sort of our, our upstream you know, product teams to, to, to build services and software on top of it and be able to train models like rapidly and do so with as little friction as possible. Okay, an API for model training. The way that people think about training a model today in most cases is like we went through. First, I've got to find my data sets. I've got to like find out if I have permissions to them. I've got to wrangle the data sets. I've got to figure out the features that I'm using. There's like a 10-step process that requires all these disjoint pieces. If I understand correctly, the vision for RailYard was to unify that into an API where almost in the same way that like Kubernetes gives you this declarative 
you know interface to doing a lot of complex stuff under the hood you would want to specify just in a single api request here is how my model should be trained yeah that's correct and you know for the model exploration piece you know, folks are still doing a lot of model training or doing a lot of the exploration like in a, in a Jupyter notebook, for example, right? And there, there, is, there is still like the upstream part of model training, the actual like feature discovery and that sort of thing. You know, Railyard doesn't help as much with. One thing that we've worked on a lot is sort of letting people, giving people ways to do that exploration within Railyard's interfaces. So, you know, they're doing, they're, they're, you know, Railyard kind of has, there, there's two ways to, to execute the Python code that Railyard executes. One way is to make an API call to the Railyard service that spins up this job on the Kubernetes cluster and trains your model. And we think of that as like the production path. You can also execute the Railyard Python hooks by just calling a little command line tool and running your Railyard workflow locally. And so sort of what we move to is people run this, this local execution of the Railyard Python code and they iterate quickly that way, right? So they, they iterate, they're trying out different features, they're tinkering, they're changing their API requests because they execute this local runner with like a little J, a JSON blob. So they're iterating, iterating, iterating locally. They might run this thing a thousand times, right? And then they get to the point where they have the features that they want, they have the model that they want, they think the results look pretty good. And at that point they say, you know, there, there's sort of this threshold where they're like, okay, this is you know, quote unquote production ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to train this thing daily where in the iteration process, they might be changing sort of the, speci- the Railyard specification a lot. They might be trying a bunch of different data features. They might be trying a bunch of different model parameters. But then in the end, what we've seen is they get to the point where they're like, all right, very little of the API request is going to change on a day-to-day basis, right? You know, for some of our for some of our jobs, all that changes is just sort of two dates, right? It's just like, I just want to retrain this model on this new set of dates today, right? All the other things are locked down. That, that's kind of how model exploration works in, in Railyard right now. And, you know, one thing, you know, one thing that's been on our list to work on is like making notebook integration for that much better. Our notebook integration is not very good right now, but we've seen like people, you know, especially folks coming into the company, like, you know, they come in expecting to be able to use Jupyter Notebooks and do sort of like notebook-based data discovery and exploration. And we're trying to make that easier too. Yeah, I think Railyard has really focused on the productionization and automation side and also on sort of the reproducibility aspect. Like some of our machine learning is pretty high stakes. You don't want to like just start declining all the charges, right? So just kind of making that really robust. And as Rob said, I think we have some work to do still on making exploration like really well integrated with that. I think one thing that's also been cool, which is not part of Railyard itself, but built on top of it, is the idea of like auto retraining. And then one thing that kind of forces you to do, like if you want to automatically retrain models and decide, like, is the new one better than the old one? One thing you have to do is kind of like codify your model evaluation logic, because there has to be a way a computer can decide, is this one better than that one? And I think that kind of really drives you away from like, let me stare at this AUC curve and kind of think about it into like, okay, you know, my algorithm is like, I want my false positive rate to be this and after that maximize recall. And figuring out also, like, in some cases, we kind of compose models, like, you know, try and run this one, but fall back to that one. You want all this stuff in the API. I think that Railyard's been, like, a really good force and kind of having this automatic retraining on top of it to have us sort of, like, codify our evaluation metrics because you kind of have to do that if you want to automate all of this stuff. And now we have kind of, like, a little bit of an evaluation API that we've built as well that um, Rob could probably say more about, too. So when I think of an API... I think of something that is kind of an imperative 
interface. Like I'm executing an API right now. Like I'm making this API request. Computer, go do something. The Kubernetes way of things is more of a declarative. Like this should be the state of the world at all times. Tell me your perspective on declarative versus imperative. I realize it's a sliding scale. It's kind of semantic, but I mean, you could have made, you could have done this declaratively. You could have said like, Railyard is a declarative way of describing when and how you want to run your models. But instead, you said, "Here is an API. You make requests to it." Was was that deliberate or like? Tell me about declarative versus imperative in your mind. It it was pretty deliberate, and it was it was sort of very driven by the product teams in that they were very interested in calling this API. Right? They wanted this API to exist because. They wanted to build, you know, sort of the idea of we want to tr- retrain these models and evaluate them, and then decide whether or not to put them in the production. They they wanted to own that logic because that that is sort of their logic to own as as the product team. They're the ones making the decisions about is this model better than the last one? Should this model go into production? That sort of thing. So from their perspective, what they really wanted was an API that they could call, like a sort of dynamic API. The declarative piece. It's an interesting question. So on Kubernetes, you know, we we use like the, the Kubernetes jobs interface, and there are pieces of that that are declarative, right? You know, we sort of have this this pile of YAML that describes how we want to run the job, right? So you know, to run a job on Kubernetes, you know, you have this YAML description of I want to run this job with these resources with this Docker file, right? So that is very declarative, and we build up one of these declarative specifications when we run the job. Within that job, within that Docker container, we're executing a bunch of imperative Python code, right? So it's sort of these pieces all working together. So we make an API call, so we make this sort of this dynamic HTTP API call with a JSON specification for how we want to train a job. We build this declarative spec to tell Kubernetes run this job with this Docker file, and then we pass through this JSON specification to Python code, which imperatively decides you know how to train the model and what data to fetch based on the specification. So it's sort of like a, a nice blend of the two. Like we're, we're sort of like we're, we're sort of using a little bit of declarative pieces in building our, our Kubernetes job and sort of specifying the Docker container. But we also have this dynamic piece, this API that our product teams are using to you know sort of train models on their terms effectively. Taking a step back, how did you come upon the insight of giving this unified experience through? an API because like it's it's not necessarily like this is not I just want to understand your thought process a little bit better because this is not necessarily like a like you know A leads to B leads to C you know kind of insight this is a insight of there's all this disconnected stuff that's going on in the machine learning developers workflow let's unify it into an API that is by the way I was looking at a request for like Railyard, like it's a lot of stuff. You have to put in a lot of different parameters because a machine learning job is very complicated. But at the same time, it's very nice to have all this stuff in one place. What led to that insight? I think we struggled in the beginning. I don't know if struggle is the right word. We just had a lot of hard decisions to make about sort of how you got ver- so many constituents. There's yeah. so many different people that you're trying to cater to with this API. Yeah, there are a lot of constituents, but I think I think one thing that we did right. And one thing that we had to make a decision on early was sort of how how much freedom to, to give users in terms of the code that was being executed. So I mentioned in the blog post that one thing we could have done 
is when we wrote Railyard, we were essentially mostly just using Scikit-learn as a machine learning platform. I don't think we, we did not have XGBoost as a plat, as a as a framework at that point. We were just using Scikit-learn. And one thing that we could have done, and one thing that we talked about, like seriously considered doing, was just building a DSL for Scikit-learn, right? Where you know people would specify not just how we want to fetch data and how we want to hold out that data and how we want to filter that data, but literally how we want to construct the rest of our ML pipeline, like each component, like how to transform it, how to encode it, what model or estimator we wanted to learn or wanted to use. And we considered that. We thought maybe, maybe we could build a DSL where, where folks would literally write no Python. The only thing they would have to write was this declarative JSON specification of how they wanted to build this machine, machine learning job end to end. So they would all they would have to do is write some JSON and that would say that would contain everything that they needed to, to run their ML job. I'm really, really happy we decided not to do that. We sort of hit a middle ground. There are some things that every, every machine learning job needs to do. They all need to fetch data and they all need to like run that data through some sort of model, right? And then at the end, they want to be able to serialize their model and they want to be able to, to serialize some sort of evaluation data. Basically, every machine learning job has a handful of things, no matter what framework they use or what problem they're trying to solve, they almost all kind of have a few things that they have to do, right? And so the Railyard API really tries to address kind of those core fundamental properties, you know, those properties that are fundamental to every ML job, and then kind of leave the rest up to the user. So I sort of jokingly referred to, to Railyard as like an arbitrary Python execution service with opinion, you know, sort of uh, opinionated interfaces at the boundaries. But that's kind of what it is. You know, when you write a Railyard workflow, we have these functions, you know, we have a method like train. We say, we're going to call the train method with your data that you have to implement, right? Like at the very least, we say, you need to tell us how we're going to, how to fetch your data. And then you need to write some Python code that trains your model and pass your model back out. But, you know, the, the product person is, is writing this Python and they can do whatever they want in that train method, right? The only contract is we're going to pass the data in and you need to pass a trained model back out. And within the train method, you can write whatever Python you want. And we've also allowed users to sort of override how they fetch data. They can customize that. And I think the flexibility in terms of letting our customers kind of write the machine learning workflows that they need to write in Python and us really just defining the interfaces is part of the reason that, you know, we've gotten pretty decent adoption with Railyard because we, have, we haven't constrained kind of like fundamentally what they're wanting to do. We haven't, you know, constrained them to just use one framework or, or just, you know, just write Python in the way that we want them to. You know, they have a lot of freedom uh, to, to build these, you know, training workflows. We just sort of define the interfaces for them. Let's make this more concrete. So let's say we're talking about the problem of fraud detection, detecting fraudulent transactions. I want to train a model and deploy a model for fraudulent transactions. I want to use the Railyard API to get this thing going. What does my request look like? What happens when I submit that request? How does Railyard parse it? How does it create the execution logic? How does it spin up resources? Take me through the life cycle of a Railyard use case. So let's let's start. Every Railyard job starts with just a blob of JSON, right? Some JSON describing how you want to run this job. So at the start, we'll start with describing where where you want to fetch your data from. So one option is we use Redshift. You can fetch your data for Redshift. Most of the production jobs, 
have, been, have ended up with their data as Parquet files in S3. So to start, you'll say, okay, I want to fetch these 10 columns from this Parquet file at this S3 path, right? So there's the start, as we say. This is concretely the data that I want to use to train my model. And, and all sort of the upstream data discovery and, and data generation has happened outside of RailYard. You're just telling RailYard, my data is ready. Please go get this data, get this co these columns from this data. So that's sort of the first part of the API request. The second part is, this is how I want to filter my data. So if you're doing retraining, it's possible that you have data, let's say you, let's say we have data that represents you know, the entire history of transactions at Stripe. Well, it's, it's probable that you don't want to train on the entire history of transactions at Stripe. Maybe you just want to train on the last three months. Maybe you want to train on the last six months. Maybe you want to train on the last year. But you probably do want to filter that data in some way, right? So that's the next part of the request is here's how I want to filter my data. And you'll see for a lot of the retraining jobs that a lot of times they're just manipulating those filters, right? They're like, we want to train the same model just with a different, with a slightly different data set, with a slightly uh, different filter set. The next part of the request is here's how I want to hold out my test data. So, you know, with the machine, machine learning, you sort of have a data set that you train on and then you have your holdout set. So you want to actually test your model against the set that, of data that it's never seen before. So this is another piece of the RailYard API specifications. You say, this is how I want to hold out my data. One way to do that is to just carve out a chunk of data. For, so you say, all right, I want to train, you know, given the last four months of transactions, I want to train on the first three of those four months. And then the last month up until now, I want to test on that. So that's an example. We also support, you know, sort of the out of the box scikit-learn ways of splitting data. You know, you can split data based on like a key. You can sort of do random sampling of data, that sort of thing. So that's like the core data request. Where's my data coming from? How do I want to filter it? And how do I want to build the holdout or test set? The next piece is, is actually pretty small and straightforward, which is just what is the workflow? So what is the name of the Python code that I want to execute? Right. Uh, and we call this, you know, we, we call it a workflow. Workflow is kind of like an overused term in a lot of different Python applications. You know, Airflow also calls the things that it, it does uh, workflows or Airflow workflows as well. But we have a real yard workflow that is essentially Python code that I want to execute. So in the request, we say, all right, here's the Python code that I want to execute. That's a, that, you know, there are a few other fields, but that's effectively the meat of it. It's like, here's the Python code I want to execute with this data. So the next thing is an engineer or a service or a computer will send this API request to the RailYard service. The RailYard service itself is written in Scala. It's a Finagle API. Finagle is a HTTP server written by Twitter. And the Scala service itself is a pretty thin layer, actually. So, you know, the Scala service validates the JSON request. It says, you know, th this thing is this thing, you know, shaped correctly. It handles sort of all of the, the, the job execution and monitoring the job. So it'll get the request. It'll take this request and then package it up for Kubernetes. So the RailYard service itself, you know, we, we run a Postgres instance. So we'll get the request and we'll tell Postgres, hey, we got a request. Here's when we got it. Here's when we're starting the job. The job is running. So Postgres is where we keep this idea of a job, you know, running or complete or, you know, the job has been killed or something like that or deleted. So the RailYard service itself is sort of Scala talking to Postgres to, to keep this metadata about job execution. And then we'll actually use the, the Kubernetes Java API itself to build a request, to build this Kubernetes job request. So we'll take the API JSON, we'll build this Kubernetes job request, and then we'll make a request directly to the Kubernetes API and say, start this job with this API request, and this Docker container, and these resources. So that request goes to Kubernetes. 
Kubernetes schedules it, right? So one thing that RailYard does is it, it tells Kubernetes, like we, we, we have sort of different instance types so we can train models on sort of instances that are optimized for CPU. We can train models on instances that are optimized with, with a ton of memory. We have GPU instances for deep learning models, that sort of thing. So Kubernetes actually schedules this job. So RailYard makes the job request to Kubernetes. Kubernetes says, okay, RailYard has told me it wants to run a job on this instance type do I have enough resources on one of these instances to run the job? And if it does, great. It will it will start up the job. It will execute the Docker container. And if not, it'll it'll basically sit there in queue and wait for resources to become available. So let's assume that the job that we have resources available and we've started the job. So you know we'll, we'll fetch the Docker container. We'll basically just execute Python. You know Python with a few command line arguments, including the API request itself, and you know things like an identifier, like a job identifier, that sort of thing. That basically calls into our Python hooks. That, that calls into our Python libraries. And at that point, we will take that JSON request and say, okay, they've said, I want to fetch data from here. I want to filter it like this. I want to hold it out like this. And, the, and that's when we start executing our Python code, where we'll, you know, we use our Python libraries to say, okay, go read this Parquet file out of S3, build it into a pandas data frame, which we've you know, sort of standardized on kind of pandas data frames and NumPy arrays for the most part. So we'll build a pandas data frame, we fetch the data, we'll carve out the holdout or test set, and then we will pass it into this train method on your workflow. And that's sort of where the, the ML engineer's code takes over, right? So up until this point, everything that RailYard has done, you know, the ML engineer has written this JSON specification, sent off a request, and everything up until now has been controlled by RailYard. And at this point, we call into the train method on the workflow with their holdout and their, their test data frame, and then it's their code running. Right. So they they build a scikit-learn pipeline or they, you know, they train an XG boost model or they train a fast text model or, or they, you know, build a PyTorch deep learning model or something like that. So they train their model and then they pass their model back out. And when they pass their model back out, we have to do a few things. So we need to save their, their data. So we need to save like their labels and their holdout data for evaluation. Right. We need to take their model and we need to serialize it. So we need to serialize it in a format that we can score it the word so that we're able to score it in production. And that is something that like Railyard owns. So like the that our ML engineer shouldn't have to think about it all, right? Serialization should be up to us. I think one of the kind of the, the beautiful things about our platform is that when you train a model with Railyard, you can as soon as the Railyard job is done, you can score that model in production like immediately. Like when your Railyard job is finished, you can immediately make an HTTP call and score your model. Like the the moment after it's done, like it, you know, it'll take, it might take a few seconds to load the model into memory. So that is being served through a Scala service that we call Diorama. So we have a scoring service where we have Scala implementations of of our machine learning model. So like we have Scala implementations of Random Forest and XGBoost and FastText and that sort of thing. So that's, yeah, that, that's sort of the end to end. And then, oh, so at the very end, uh, we'll also report back to the Railyard service and say, hey, our job is done. Here's our model identifier. Here's where all your evaluation data is. The Railyard service will tell Postgres, all right, you know, set this column to complete. And then someone can query the Railyard API and get, get back their model ID and their, their paths to their evaluation data and that sort of thing. And that's sort of the life cycle of a Railyard job. It's quite a detailed system. And... You know, one thing I, I like about it is the, kind of the boldness of having to outlay so much work, it seems, before you really have... I mean, is this something you can build a proof of concept for, or is it something where you really just have to kind of, like, get everything done and then, like, let people do it? Or is there some... Can you give people, like, a 
maybe you give them the API service and then like you go and like wire everything together in an ad hoc fashion. I guess there are some ways of prototyping this kind of thing. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, there's there's kind of this uh, sort of cliche in tech that what you want to do is like build the skateboard and then the bicycle and then the car, right? But I think in practice, it's often very hard to do that. I think in this case, we did a pretty okay job. So we kind of started with a Python code base. So when I talked about ML engineers kind of logging, you know, SSHing into an EC2 instance and training a model, we had something that looked a lot like a Railyard workflow as a Python library already. So a lot of these Python libraries were already in place. They were just executed by people from the command line, right? So, you know, we, we sort of had to restructure those, you know, ra rather than having a workflow, there was a bunch of sort of imperative Python. We had to make sure that we could build that workflow from some JSON. But mo a lot of those Python pieces were in place. So, you know, there was, there was some work to, to sort of uh, refactor them in, into, into something that we could execute, like based on like a declarative JSON specification, but it wasn't too bad. So, you know, a lot of those things had already been written. And then the next thing we did is like, actually the, the very first version of, of Railyard didn't interact with Kubernetes at all. The very first version of Railyard had, so I was talking about the Scala service that, that like, you know, is, is the HTTP API and talks to Postgres. The very first version of Railyard was just that Scala service running on an EC2 instance using Java's process manager to kick off a Python process that would run these training jobs. And we ran like that for months. Like we, you know, the, the very first version of, of Railyard was just the Scala service using Java's process management to run Python processes and get results that way. So there was no Kubernetes component for, for quite a while. That was sort of us walking. And then at the, you know, sort of at the end of like this, this first big project sprint, you know, we, we, we finally were able to get the Kubernetes integration and, and move off of move off of sort of what we call the in-memory runner, the in-memory runner being, you know, you know, Java kicking off Python processes. But, you know, it, it let us ship the first version of Railyard, you know, months before we would have otherwise and sort of let us validate that it was going to be a useful thing for folks and that it was going to be sort of uh, and, and let us sort of iterate on it early on without having the complexity uh, of, of Kubernetes. Now, you know, the downside for this was, you know, this first version, the in-memory version, you know, we were sort of still running on uh, EC2 instances where we, where we, you know, if we needed more memory, then, you know, we had to, to, to spin up new instances. Like we didn't have the flexibility, you know, we didn't have like the scheduling capability of Kubernetes. We didn't have the ability to run on different instance types. There are a number of things that Kubernetes gives us now that are really nice to have. But yeah, that first version was, was, was just a Scala service that was like kicking off Python processes, you know in memory right there on the same box that the service ran on. we got to begin wrapping up. I've definitely only scratched the surface of the questions that I wanted to ask. As we conclude, I want to get both of your perspectives on the industry trends that are exemplified by this work that you've done. So there's a bunch of different burgeoning areas that we've touched on from kind of the exploratory versus deployment fashion, like the exploratory Jupyter Notebook side of thing we didn't really get into versus the, you know, deployment frictions versus this, you know, your reframing of the problem into giving a, an API surface to something that was a bunch of disconnected parts. So there's so many different areas that we, we didn't really dive into in, in as much detail as I would like. I guess, Kelly, from your side of things, I'm, I'm hoping to get a perspective on data engineering management and the the roles of different people 
in an organization, how they work together. And then to wrap up, I'd like to get Rob's perspective on the individual data engineering practitioner and how things are evolving there. So Kelly, why don't you go first? So you're you're kind of asking about just different the state, roles state and how of the world. Interact. The state of the world, not just at Stripe, where you know you've got a high functioning organization with a bunch of unicorns. Speaking more generally about the industry, like you know, thinking about your random software engineering shop that does machine learning work in the Midwest somewhere. Just just the set of tools that are available, industry trends. What is changing in the life of teams? So I think there's a few things that are happening. One is just in terms of like which tools and frameworks, there's sort of like this massive explosion of things that people can try. And I think that's both kind of like libraries as well as sort of more like managed products. So I think there are a lot of different things people can explore. I think you can divide a little bit into like kind of people like you're talking about someone in the Midwest who wants to do a little bit machine learning versus like kind of large scale production deployments. And I think actually the managed space is pretty exciting for the first group where you have things like SageMaker on AWS and just like a lot of ways that someone can get started and get something working a lot faster than they used to be able to without having to know kind of all these many layers through like the application and machine learning all the way through machine learning infrastructure all the way down to compute. Yeah. So I think that's actually like pretty cool. Yeah. And, the, and I, I do think you have the side that's more like really scalable, customizable for companies that really focus and have teams on this where you know, different open source projects that people are like delving more into. And I think we're like a little bit more on that side where yeah. we want to, we, we want a lot of control over how we do things and right. we care a lot about the scalability. So we're kind right. of- like SageMaker wouldn't work so well for the nuance that you want to bring to your infrastructure. Yeah, although I think, you know, if it were like five years ago and we were just starting out, like maybe that would be kind of useful for us. But I think we've kind of passed through a little bit the point and we've built like so much of our own already that's sort of more customizable and tailored to our needs. But we are kind of looking at like what are all the frameworks? Like we have people now using FastText, we have people using PyTorch, we have people using Profit. So we're kind of looking at like what are all the capabilities that we want to integrate to our platform versus like the here's a managed platform that gives you something like pretty good for like not much. Very interesting. Okay, so Rob, as somebody who was building these kinds of tools that Kelly alluded to, you know, you're you you've got your hands deep in the muck. Any predictions or perspectives on how the building of machine learning infrastructure will change in the near future? I think that Kelly, you know, if you think about five years ago, and you said, I, I have a machine learning model. How do I how do I deploy it? How do I actually score this thing in production? The options were, were pretty limited. You know, we we're talking about, you know, SageMaker. I, we realized recently, we we're thinking about SageMaker, kind of pondering, like, why didn't we use SageMaker? Like, we, we started the RailYard project six months before SageMaker was announced, right? So a lot of these tools, like if you look at sort of Google and Microsoft, like Azure and uh, AWS's offerings now, they're really quite good. So I think for a lot of teams, they're, go- they're probably going to end up sort of using one of those solutions for serving models. You can also build this yourself. You know, you can you can stand up a Python service and, and train a Python model and sort of you know serialize your model using uh, the built-in scikit-learn stuff. You know, that that's an option for a, a lot of companies with a big enough team. I think the hard part is for a small company, 
you know, Stripe, we're, we're lucky that we have a machine learning infrastructure team, right? We have a team that can build these things. For a lot of companies, you know, the data engineer and also the data scientist and also the machine learning ex- in, like infrastructure person and also sometimes like the product application person and the analer- analytics person, right? Sort of, I think it's a very common case where the first data science hire at a given company has to do all of these jobs at once. And I think for them, like these managed services I think are going to be like a huge, huge help because it just takes away some of the things that they have to think about. So in the same way that we built RailYard and our machine learning infrastructures internal at Stripe to help machine learning engineers and data scientists think less about these things, I think like sort of the managed services are helping the small companies um, think less about them too. I think that, you know, it's interesting... Google, so TensorFlow, TensorFlow has a really good serving solution now. I think we're going to see more things like this. There's been some pretty interesting research like out of Berkeley talking about machine learning serving systems, that sort of thing. I, you know, we've seen if you're like starting a company and you're like, all right, I want to pick a database and sort of like a message queue. You kind of have these big, great open source solutions. You know, you can choose Mongo or Postgres or one of these, you know, open source database systems. You can say, I want to use uh, Kafka, right, as, as a message broker, which is like a wonderful, huge open source project. But as far as training models, like there are a bunch of great training frameworks. Like it's very, it's very straightforward to get started with Scikit-Learn, get started with PyTorch. But in terms uh, of actually like serving those models in production, like that's one area where there hasn't been a ton of open source work yet. And I'm expecting to see more of it. So I think like TensorFlow serving and Kubeflow and that sort of thing is like steps in that direction. And I expect to see more things like that in the future, sort of more, more out of the box open source solutions for, for serving models in production. That, that, that's sort of where I see things headed. Well, and I think one of the things that kind of circling back to what we talked about at the beginning, like machine learning infrastructure is sort of challenging and interesting, partly because it's sort of like this integration over everything else your company does, where you're like using all the data and all the other infrastructure. And that makes it like a little bit harder to kind of standardize across companies. So I think in the managed space, like you'll have people where just those components become more standard. So everyone actually is using the same set of things and they can build on that. But then for larger companies, you kind of have to figure out like how do you glue together all of these different components that you may want to use and make it kind of like cohesive and and work together. And when we talk to other ML infrastructure teams, I think, you know, some things it's like everyone has their own version of this thing, but it's a little bit hard for you all to use exactly the same framework because you're building on like slightly different infrastructure underneath. There's certainly not a historical example that's easy to map to. So if you think about like Netflix being the first big company to move to the cloud and adopting EC2 servers, like the abstraction of an EC2 server, not very complicated. Like it's a virtual machine. Everybody knows that's what they want. With machine learning infrastructure, it's like a lot of different people want a lot of different things. There's a lot of subjectivity. Hard to know what the end state is going to be if we talk about something like like a standardized set of things. Even if you compare it to something like the, the container orchestration space, in the container orchestration space you had, you know, Mesos and Docker Swarm and Kubernetes and they were doing stuff that looked pretty similar. The API services were kind of different. When I look across the machine learning space, it seems like there's way more variability than there was in the early days of container orchestration. So it's, I just I just bring that up not to open a can of worms, but just to say that it's it's so hard to predict and it's very hard to draw any kind of historical analogy to the way that that frameworks have developed in the past. You know? 
Yeah, I think I think like a really good example of 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 this is if you look at the machine learning frameworks themselves, you know they've especially in, in the in Python, they've pretty much standardized to you know kind of NumPy like arrays or pandas data frames, things that look like matrices, right? You know, TensorFlow has its own tensor interface. PyTorch has its own tensor interface. There's a NumPy interface, but they all look pretty similar. Like if you look at PyTorch's tensor interfla- interface, they've, they, they sort of follow what NumPy does quite closely. The real problem has been, given that you have a trained model, is there a common format that you can serialize that model to that something downstream could read? So like model serialization, how do you serialize the model? Sorry, did, did, what, what does that mean? Why is model serialization important? So if you want to be able to serve the model in production, you need to be able to save the model to a format that you can reload somewhere, right? So the example of like a simple Python service is if you train, if you train a model in Python, you want to be able to save that model to some sort of serialization format and then reload it into scikit-learn, right? As an example, like you want to have scikit-learn be able to save it to a file and then reload it from a file. Scikit-learn's solution for that traditionally has been Python's pickle module. So, you know, pickling Python classes. There's never been, so we talked a little bit earlier about sort of having a declarative specification for something. There's never been, until recently, a great declarative specification for machine learning models. Now, TensorFlow did a great job of this out of the gate. So you can take any TensorFlow model and you can save it to Protobuf, right? So So the Protobuf is like a declarative specification of that deep learning graph, effectively. And the rest of the industry outside of TensorFlow has never really had a standardized format until about eight or nine months ago when a group of Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft and a bunch of other companies got together and have have been working on this format called Onyx, O-N-N-X, which has been, in my mind, the most successful attempt thus far at having having a standard format for serializing ML models. Pretty focused on deep learning models, but also has hooks to serialize our you know, normal normal model types. And so at, at Stripe, we have in the past, we, we've rolled our own serialization. We have our own custom JSON serializers for models. We're, we think we're probably gonna start moving towards Onyx as like a standardized serialization format. Microsoft has been doing a ton of work uh, talking about the scoring side Microsoft is open source, like sort of a scoring service for Onyx. So I think if we can see a model serialization format that has sort of a declarative specification for here is an ML model, and then you can see that anybody can implement against that specification, right? You know, given this declarative specification of a model, you should have the same scores out of that model, no matter, you know, you know, modulo some floating point, you know, rounding error, you should have, you should have really similar scores out of any service that scores that model, right? And I think that if Onyx can get traction, if, if like a standardized model serialization format can get traction, that's what's going to unlock more open source solutions for like for model scoring. All right. Well, I got to do a show on Onyx. Rob and Kelly, thank you for all your time. Really interesting subjects. Thank you. Yep. Thanks a lot. Wow.